This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 22, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The high cost of housing, relatively stagnant economic performance, and racial and economic segregation. Is it possible that ending zoning would go a long way toward addressing all of these problems? Nolan Gray believes so. He's author of the new book, Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. We spoke earlier this month. This may seem like a dumb question, the kind of question you get in the first class of an intro to anthropology or sociology or urban economics. Why do people want to live in close proximity to one another? That's a great way to start the conversation. Um, right. Why do people form cities? Um, cities are noisy, smelly, they're more expensive. Um, on all of these quality of life margins, they can be worse to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, why do people live in cities and why have humans lived in cities? Like basically all of human history. Um, simple reason, which I think something who understand people who appreciate markets should be able to understand is that cities allow us to connect with other people. They allow us to tap into large labor markets, for example. They allow us to find the job that's perfect for us. They allow us to uh, exchange both in goods and ideas with other people who are working on the same issues as us. And in this way, they make us all richer and more productive and more innovative. And, and you know, you go through in your book uh, various economists' work in sort of detailing the in in fine terms, in almost granular terms, what the value is to the one, the broader economy of having people easily be able to move from one place to another to take advantage of opportunities. Uh, and um, it seems that zoning in in so many ways stymies that effort at great cost. Yeah. Well, historically, Americans moved from poor, uh, less productive parts of the country to richer, more productive parts of the country. So this happened even as late as World War II, right? So, of course, you have the great migrations of African-Americans out of the South uh, to the Northeast and the West Coast. But, of course, uh, as Kentuckians, you know, we know the, the Hibilly Highway, right? A whole bunch of Kentuckians moved to places like Cleveland and Columbus to find work in industries. Uh, so historically... Uh, regions were within the U.S. were coalescing, right? They were they were uh, the gaps between certain regions were closing. But something that we've seen, particularly over the last fifty years, is that has stopped and actually reversed. So it's very hard for, for example, a young kid moving up, uh, growing up in a place like the Mississippi Delta or uh, Eastern Kentucky, to move to the most productive places like New York City or San Francisco. Uh, it's very hard for them to tap into all of that opportunity that in past generations, their parents might have done. And one of the main reasons for that is that the housing is simply too expensive. So, for example, for that kid in eastern Kentucky, he could move to San Francisco. And, yeah, his, you know, his his wages might increase, you know, by three times, but his housing costs might increase by five times or six times or even worse. Uh, so the gains of moving to these high productivity regions are completely eaten up uh, by the cost of real estate. So what you're seeing now is a sort of reversal of historical trends is that Americans are actually moving to lower productivity regions, um, right? So, you know, they're moving to places where they can actually find affordable housing. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Phoenix and, and Orlando, these places that are growing really rapidly are perfectly fine places to live, uh, no problem with them. Uh, 
But of course, we're all worse off if maybe a young software engineer can't move to San Jose or a young medical researcher can't move to Boston. We're all just less wealthy and less innovative as a result. And I, I know that uh, Ed Glazer, among others, you you note uh, Enrico Moretti has done a bunch of work in this this kind of area. In terms of money, we're just leaving on the table because people uh, are not choosing what otherwise might be their most productive avenues, their most uh, fulfilling avenues, potentially. Uh, what are we leaving on the table economically? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lively debate within the urban economics literature on the exact scale of the cost, uh, but it's pretty dramatic. I mean, the you know, if you compound 50 years of Americans moving from high productivity to regions to low productivity regions, uh, the cost is pretty extreme. Uh, so, you know, Moretti have estimates and, and, and Duranton have estimates and, and these vary. Uh, but uh, generally, you know, we're talking, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent GDP. Uh, the the Moretti figures are pretty extreme, but of course, those are uh, in debate. Um, I think there's there is broad consensus that that there is extreme cost. And, and the, of course, the economists are going to debate uh, till the end of time, the exact nature of those costs. Uh, but there's a pretty wide consensus now that, you know, this is a one of the main impediments, I think, to economic opportunity and growth and resolving, for example, regional inequality in the United States, which is a very potent issue right now. Yeah. And I do want to get to uh, some of that as well. But this is a national problem. The costs that our economy faces, that individuals could be uh, living better lives if they were able to take advantage of these opportunities. And yet the decisions that are made about zoning are overwhelmingly local. So thread that thread that needle. Why? What is the specific problem with that? Yeah, that's a that's a really great and subtle point. I mean, it's it's almost like you have to take a public choice lens with this issue, right? So, of course, as a nation, we want people to be able to move to the place where they can be the most productive and the most innovative. Uh, but then we set land use policy, which determines what can and can't be built everywhere at a purely local level, right? So, of course, in the aggregate, it might be it might be good for for all parties involved if if people who want to go into finance can move to New York City. Uh, but of course, if you want to build apartments in a place like in a neighborhood like Greenwich Village, uh, that's totally at the discretion of the people who happen to already live there. Right. And that's not to say that that people shouldn't have any say whatsoever uh, in what happens in their community. And I think there's a balance that has to be struck. But it strikes me looking at the way we've done things today, that balance is completely out of whack. Right. Uh, local interest can totally override uh, not only the needs of the country, but the reads, the needs of the city as a whole. So, you know, another conversation that's happening right now is gentrification, right? There's some are concerned that, um, you know, lower income areas are becoming more expensive and, and current residents are getting displaced. Part of why that happened, part of why that happens is that the most affluent and productive areas are very successful at stopping uh, new development in existing high income productive neighborhoods. And so all of this pressure gets pushed onto lower income neighborhoods in a place like New York City or, or even D.C. So. The upside for the the term you use, which I don't think is original to you, home voters. These are the the people who are incumbent property owners in an area that like things just fine the way they are. Thank you very much. And those people overwhelmingly are the ones who, looking at their home value estimates on various websites and uh, wanting to make sure that they preserve that value 
are the ones most likely to be engaged in the process of trying to prevent uh, some new housing development uh, going in near their home that would uh, make traffic worse, that would uh, make crime worse, potentially, uh, in, in their view. So uh, for, for them, zoning, it, it seems like it's all upside. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, we've essentially structured our entire tax regime to where, you know, we've heavily incentivized people to invest in their home. So for most Americans, your home is your overwhelmingly your 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 largest single investment. Um, it's your nest egg. Uh, you know, we've done that through a whole bunch of different subsidies, right? Mortgage interest deduction, um, state and local tax exemptions on property taxes, um, things like capital gains exemptions. So we've encouraged people to park a whole bunch of money in housing. And then understandably, they're extremely conservative about everything that happens around them, right? People naturally are very concerned about maintaining the value of that home and, and um, attacking perceived threats. And so uh, those are the people, incidentally, who are going to have the most say in local land use decisions. Um, and so, you know, from their perspective, of course, it might be perfectly rational to limit new housing production in their community because it enriches incumbent owners. Uh, I would argue that the status quo actually doesn't work for them though, on a whole bunch of margins, right? So what happens when you, let's say you're a homeowner in one of these places in the Bay Area, for example, where houses have gone completely through the roof? What happens if you want to downsize? Um, you want to sell your home and buy something smaller in your community? You want to stay where you live? Well, in many cases, you're not going to be able to afford anything that exists in your current community. Um, or what happens if you want your kids to be able to buy a home near you? Um, you know, so many people who I talk to in California, they say, my kids had to move to Utah or Arizona or Texas just to be able to afford to buy a home. So in one sense, yeah, if you're an incumbent property owner in, in, in some of these supply constrained cities, uh, it's great for you. Your home values are going up. You can check Zillow every day and get excited. On the other hand, your community is essentially being destroyed, right? You can't stay in your community when you're tired and your kids are going to have to move away. I have heard from a, a developer, and this is uh, recent. He's a home developer. And uh, his thought was, if you don't have small children running around in your neighborhood, that's a really bad sign for your neighborhood. Can you can you unpack that a little bit from your perspective? That's a really interesting point. Um, you know, so when you look at a lot of these California cities and towns, for example, and I just talk about California because it's where the crisis is most advanced, but it's of course going to be coming to cities all across the country. Um, you look at a lot of these suburbs over across the state of California, and for the past 50 years, they've taken this approach of, you know, we want to save our community. We want to keep our community as it is. So we're not going to allow anything to be built. But if you actually look at the demographics for a lot of those communities, they've changed dramatically, right? By not allowing any new housing to be built, for example, uh, smaller homes, maybe like smaller homes on smaller lots or townhouses, uh, young families aren't able to move into these communities. Uh, so if you actually look at some of these communities that have been most effective at stopping new housing from getting built, they haven't stayed the same. On the contrary, they've changed really dramatically. So they've aged quite a bit. The populations have actually shrunk. You have more empty nesters living in large homes that that once housed uh, families. And I think as your developer friend notices, you have a lot of communities where there's no children because there's just simply no path for, for, for uh, working and middle-class families to own a home there. Everything you've described so far about zoning is well-meaning people who are looking out for their own interests. 
um, in terms of property values, of, of, of having a better community uh, to live in. But zoning has been used historically as a way to exclude whole racial groups. In fact, uh, I, you know, I consider Louisville, Kentucky, my hometown, has a terrible history in, in that regard. Uh, and other cities do too. And it, and it wasn't even, uh, people weren't even pretending what they were doing. They were doing something else. They weren't pretending they were doing something else. They were openly saying, we need to keep this ethnic group uh, this racial category out of our neighborhoods. And um, it's not totally clear that that's entirely gone away. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you look at the origins of modern zoning as it exists today in most U.S. cities, um, a lot of these codes are adopted in the immediate aftermath of Buchanan v. Worley, right? So uh, in this case, uh, Louisville, uh, with apologies to Caleb, had engaged in explicitly racial zoning. They were trying to say, you know, uh, white families can't move on to predominantly black blocks and black families can't move on to predominantly white blocks. And they tried to say, oh, well, this is race blind. It, it affects white people just as much as black people. Um, but of course, common sense can tell you exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to prevent black families from moving into predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, in, a, in a rare moment of clarity from this period, the Supreme Court says, no, we see what you're trying to do here and we're not going to allow it. Uh, but this leaves cities in a position that cities that want to pursue this racial segregation in a bit of a bind. So they say, you know, how are we going to uh, use the power of the state to enforce and entrench regulation? So they turn to what we now have today, which is modern Euclidean zoning, uh, named after the Supreme Court case uh, Euclid v. Ambler, uh, which allows them to do a lot of the same things, right? So the current zoning codes that are on the books essentially allow municipalities to determine who gets to live where, not based on race, but based on income, right? So if, if a local government can say, we're going to allow apartments here, but not there, or we're going to allow homes on half acre lots here, but no homes on 5,000 square foot lots here. If local governments have that power, they effectively have the power to determine how wealthy you have to be in certain areas of city uh, of the city to live. And of course, in the American context, uh, if you can determine income segregation, you can determine racial segregation. And in many cases, these codes are still on the books and they're serving those exact same objectives. There are other ways that zoning and other restrictions on building uh, play a role in segregating uh, groups in California in particular. A huge amount, a huge amount of the construction cost of a new home, even if, it, if we're getting a slightly off topic, but not super off topic here. A, a huge amount of the cost of a new home is compliance, is trying to uh, placate some somebody who could live hundreds of miles away from you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just the substance of the regulations, right? So the substance of a lot of zoning regulations increases housing costs for sure, requiring that lots. Uh, be larger than consumers might otherwise have preferred, or requiring that apartment buildings come with, you know, large parking garages that that renters might not have actually wanted. Um, but there's a subtler way that zoning increases housing costs, which which you're mentioning here, which is just the sheer uh, process and compliance costs, right? So historically, the way we tried to do things was, you know, if you come in and you're compliant with the zoning, uh, here are your permits. Go ahead, you can start building. And the rules were still an issue. But you had relative certainty, right? But what we see now is that we've moved more and more to a system of discretionary permitting. So this is where we say, you know, the local planners and local uh, council members 
have a lot of discretion about what they do and don't allow. Uh, and so, of course, this lengthens the process. This adds a lot of risk to the process. When you couple it with things like environmental review, it adds a lot of litigation risk. So, you know, in many cases, if you want to build an apartment building in a city or if you want to build a new subdivision, you have to uh, budget for likely uh, litigation from, you know, under the guise of environmentalism, but is really just, you know, bad faith. Uh, and all of that, of course, increases the cost of housing and it, it delays housing. And in some cases, it succeeds in killing projects altogether. And uh, who does that leave in the process of constructing housing? Well, this so this system benefits the largest builders, right, to a certain extent, uh, because, you know, if you're a large builder and you have an in-house legal team that can can deal with all those problems or you have your in-house planner who can navigate all those permits for you, uh, you're fine. This really hurts the small developers, right? The small guys who, you know, I always say some of the best neighborhoods in America were built by some guy and his cousins, right? You know, if you look at a lot of these great neighborhoods, these great inner suburban neighborhoods, um, you know, that were built in maybe the 19 teens or 20s, maybe you have in many cases with materials uh, mailed from Sears Roebuck, right? Uh, and people who are unskilled putting together these homes that we now cherish, we now subject them to historic regulations, right? Uh, but we got neighborhoods like that because it was very easy for a lot of small operators to build housing. It was very easy for people to run experiments and try new things and for neighborhoods to creatively reinvent themselves. Uh, and so, of course, zoning tampers down on a lot of that, but then it really hurts when it makes it hard for small operators to 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 build housing. And so you get a few large builders who build roughly the same things city to city. And yet the people who are most concerned often with neighborhood character, uh, most concerned with uh, making sure that uh, housing has a certain look and feel to it, uh, that their efforts at preventing new construction uh, nearby can have this effect of driving a lot of new housing to be sort of cookie color cutter vanilla box uh sort of bland looking housing yeah yeah i mean that's an interesting observation i i would say probably part of what's going on is that um just given all the other costs and all the other risks uh that are caused by by zoning and all of this entitlement risk that developers on the design margin are probably more conservative right so like the 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 one or two buildings that you get to build, right? You don't get to take a lot of design risk. You don't get a lot to try out a lot of new things. But if you're doing a lot of small projects, right, which is historically uh, how cities uh, rebuilt and reinvented themselves, you can try new things, right? And so this is why, if you look abroad, for example, to a country like Japan, where they have very liberal land use regulations, you know, they still have things like building codes and and inspections, the type of things that you know most people are are comfortable with. Uh, but they don't have the really, really strict zoning that we have here. And what you see is a lot of architectural innovation. You see a lot of de design innovation that's just not happening in a country like the U.S. A lot of people who want to uh, liberalize zoning or abolish zoning altogether point to Houston, Texas. Why? Yeah. So, you know, Houston's an interesting case. Um on a lot of margins, it's not a model city. So Houston made a lot of the planning mistakes that almost every other city made. Uh, you know, big government, high modernist planning mistakes. You know, we're going to build huge freeways through neighborhoods. Uh, we're going to engage in you know some urban renewal and clear out certain neighborhoods. Um, they they made a lot of those mistakes, right? But in the book, I argue they didn't make one mistake and one really important mistake, and they didn't adopt zoning. 
And they didn't adopt zoning because they were the only city that actually subjected zoning to a citywide vote. And Houston voters, three times over, rejected zoning. And so what you see in a context like Houston is they still have lightning regulations, right? They still have lightning regulations for things like uh, nuisances that bug people or, you know, especially onerous uses that you, you know, you do want to keep seg- segregated, but they don't have this zoning uh, system that every other city in America has. It says, you know, okay, you can't have, a, you can have single family homes here in apartments there, or you can't have a corner grocery in this neighborhood. They don't have a lot of those rules. And so, you know, from a zoning paradigm, you would think, well, of course, the city must be just pure chaos from a lightning perspective. And if you actually visit Houston, uh, you know, it's, uh, like I say, right, made a lot of other planning mistakes, but from a lightning perspective, yeah, it's perfectly fine. And what you can see in a Houston, in a place, in a place like Houston, is they can actually, you know, uh, evolve to meet changing demands, right? So, for example, a lot of cities are facing really, really high housing demand, but Houston and maybe only a handful of other cities have actually been able to build enough housing to accommodate that. So, a city like Houston can get denser, and they can take that. 5,000 square foot single family home and turn it into three townhouses that allow for for three middle class families to be able to afford to stay in the city. Or they can take that vacant industrial lot that's just sitting there not doing anything in a zone city that might have been zoned for industry and it might have had to wait until just the right use that regulators said was allowed uh, comes in. But in a city like Houston, you can take it and turn it into a, a five over one with five apartments over top of shops. And that's helped to keep Houston not only one of the most affordable cities in the country, but one of the most diverse. Uh, and so, you know, as an interesting model for what America could look like without zoning, I actually think it's pretty promising. So, uh, you, you mentioned some sort of insidery, uh, terms, five over ones, Mm. uh, which is what first floor commercial with apartments over top of it. Is that that's right. What you're describing. Why don't we see more of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, so. I would say a few reasons. Um, the first is uh, in most U.S. cities, in something like eighty to ninety percent of the city, apartments are illegal to build. Period. Um, so you, you know, if you're a property owner and maybe you own a ten thousand square foot lot and you want to build a small apartment building, uh, you just legally can't do that. And you can go and ask the city for for regulatory relief, but they're probably not going to give it. <laughs> right? Maybe you can lawyer up and really push on it, but uh, good luck. Um, that's part of it. The other part of it is that zoning. Uh, assumes that we have to separate all of these uses, right? So zoning second guesses uh, uh, developers and consumers on this and says, you know, hey, um, commercial is going to go over here in this part of town and residential is going to go over here in that part of town. And you're going to drive back and forth between them. Of course, a lot of people don't necessarily want that lifestyle. Some people might want to live in an apartment over a shop. Not everybody does, and that's okay. And of course, you're you're going to have in an unzoned city, you're going to have lots of different options uh, as you do in a place like Houston. But some people do want that right? Some people do want to live in a community like that. But in many cases, the regulations make it illegal. I would say there's a whole bunch of different rules. And this is partly why I think there hasn't really been a lot of discourse about zoning until recently, because it's just so obtuse and so confusing. But I'd say another set of rules that that make it difficult are things like minimum parking requirements, which say that, hey, if you want to build um, so much commercial square footage, or if you want to build so many apartment units, you have to build a giant parking garage. Uh, and consumers might demand that, and, and developers would be forced to build it if that's the case. But in some more urban contexts, of course, a lot of people might not have a car. Or maybe they only have one car per unit, and the regulations require two parking spaces per unit or three parking spaces per unit. And then, of course, in the suburbs, we've all seen this. You go to your mall or you go to a strip mall, and even on Black Friday, something like half or 75% of the parking lot is empty. And you look at that from, you know, 
from a market perspective and you're like, well, why, like, why would the developer build all of that parking? Um, it's obvious that it's never going to get used, right? Well, in many cases, it's actually mandated by the regulations. And of course, you know, as my mentor at UCLA likes to say, Donald Shoup, there's no such thing as, as free parking. Um, you know, the regulations are forcing all that parking to get built. That's being priced into higher costs for consumers. That's being, you know, in the case of a an apartment building in a city that has to build a parking garage, that's being parsed into, or that's being priced into uh, higher cost housing. One of the uh, anecdotes you uh, note in your book is that if everyone in Manhattan, I believe, had to move to Oklahoma City uh, and and abide by the rules of Oklahoma City uh, building for uh, residential housing, that Oklahoma City would have to be 1,600 square miles. Yeah. I mean, so this is a kind of funny thing, right? So I think a this is a legacy of a lot of really unsavory ideas, I think, environmental ideas that 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 arose in the 70s, 60s and 70s, right? I think a sort of population growth ethos. And I think one of the ideas that got baked into the popular conscious around that time was that cities were these environmental disasters, right? Cities were bad for the environment. And so we can protect the environment by making it hard for cities to get denser and for cities to grow. Um of course, if we actually look at the data, it's the exact opposite, right? Uh, people who live in apartments in walkable or bikeable or transit accessible neighborhoods consume far, far, far less energy than their peers who live in the suburbs. And again, I'm not saying that you know any particular lifestyle is inherently superior or that we should subsidize any, but if given the choice, like I say, you know, a lot of people want to live that urban lifestyle. A lot of people want to live in a place like Manhattan, right? There's a reason why prices are high. And it's not just because of supply constraints. It's also because demand is really high. Um, so, you know, we have this idea of like, what does it mean? What would it look like to live an environmentally friendly lifestyle? And I think if you ask the average person, they would say, oh, well, it's like living in a, in a home out on a ranch. Um, and it's like, well, you know, it's actually the opposite. If you look at, you know, things like energy consumption or uh, preservation of open spaces, that uh, it's actually good for the environment uh, if people want to make that decision to live in a city and we shouldn't ban it. And we shouldn't make it uh, needlessly expensive or difficult as zoning does today. The hard-nosed reality for a lot of people who believe in markets, who believe in liberty, who believe in private property rights uh, and self-determination is, hey, look, I bought this chunk of land. I own it. I, With minimal restrictions, I should be able to put whatever kind of housing on this land that I want. And yet that argument seems to have very little purchase in American politics. And if you're a politician who's running on that kind of platform, uh, it would you might be run out of town on a rail. Right. And that's the incredible irony of zoning, right, is that property rights is a core American value. A lot of people really, really hold that sacred and, and understandably so. But then when you look at how we actually govern our cities, we've given over the power to determine what you can and can't do with basically every detail of your property over to unelected bureaucrats and neighborhood busybodies who show up at public hearings and and <laughs> yell at elected officials, right? Um, you know, you can't do that thing historically where someone might say, hey, I'm not using my garage or I'm not using my second floor. Maybe I can rent it out. Or for example, operate a home-based business out of your home. You know, historically that was very common uh, for people to work from home. And, and now we're kind of returning back to that and of course, what you see right now is that cities all across the country are scrambling to, to liberalize their zoning rules that in many cases completely prohibit or, or place a whole bunch of permitting hurdles in front of operating home-based business or maybe building a little accessory dwelling unit uh, in your backyard. Uh, so we're in a moment right now where I think 
there's reform happening and a lot of property rights are, are being restored. Of course, it, it's not necessarily framed in that way for, for political reasons, but uh, we're in a moment where we're returning to that. And I think that's all well and good. Uh, but I think we need to look at the deeper issue with zoning, which is some of the assumptions that we have about what the government should and shouldn't be able to regulate. One of the points that you make in, in your book, based on a lot of other uh, economists' work, is that cities specialize. And that, uh, and you alluded to it briefly, but why is it important that, uh, why is zoning important to the process of allowing cities and regions to become really good at things? Yeah, well, you know, I think fans of Hayek will appreciate cities as spontaneous orders, right? Uh, they're things that emerge that they look planned, but actually they emerge from the individual decisions of the millions of people who maybe live and work and participate in these systems. Um, and so, you know, of course, every every city in the world is trying to be the next Silicon Valley. But the reality of economic growth is that it emerges unplanned from the plans of 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 many individuals. Right. And one of the interesting things that we see emerge from this is that cities, exactly as you say, specialize. So, for example, a city like Boston specializes in in, in medical technology, or a city like San Jose specializes uh, in tech, or, for example, Houston specializes in energy. Uh, and these specializations make us all richer, right? So when people are in an environment where there's a whole bunch of other people working on the same problem, they can exchange ideas, and they can all get better, and they can all sharpen their work. Right. So, of course, there's the all the famous, uh, possibly apocryphal stories about how Silicon Valley started in the bars of San Jose with, uh, you know, tech workers just hanging out and talking amongst each other and then going on to found all of these, you know, economy redefining uh, companies. Right. There's this serendipity to it that uh, that cities have an incredible way of cultivating and making us all richer as a result. And, and that freedom that we uh, claim to cherish in the, the United States of America is really can be a uh, strategic uh, benefit. That is a lot of other countries around the world that might might want to actively develop a, an industry might not be quite as good at it if the people who are active, who are going to actually be doing the work can't easily go from place to place. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think as as we were talking about earlier, um, you know, if somebody who wants to specialize in one of these fields can't move to that city, maybe because housing costs are too high or maybe they can move to that city. But any gains that they'll experience their income are just going to be eaten up by higher housing costs. Of course, they're not going to make that decision. They're not going to move to that place where they could have been the most productive. Uh, and we're all going to be poorer and less innovative as a result. Going forward, uh, you mentioned California. Uh, or you alluded to California making some reforms. Uh, we talked about Houston being a, a city where uh, voters have rejected zoning uh, multiple times. Uh, it seems that we're in a moment where, uh, at least for some parts of the country, specific metropolitan areas and the entire state of California, have, uh, have uh, realized this is a problem. And other states that do not have substantially dissimilar rules in place just haven't been hit with the same problems uh, that these uh, dense, large metros have. Yeah. So in California, of course, it's the most advanced case of, of a lot of these problems, right? So in, in California, of course, home prices have, have gone completely out of control. 
uh, and many renters pay something like 50% of their income and in rent. And then, of course, a lot of families just have no path to homeownership. And that's why we're seeing this huge exodus out of California. It's not the uh, it's not the great weather or the uh, the beautiful mountains that are making people leave. It's they simply cannot afford to find decent housing in the communities that, in many cases, they grew up in. Uh, so you're seeing this exodus to the West. California, you know, I think to their credit, uh, you know, or to our credit, <laughs> we're dealing with some of these issues, right? The state is trying to put up barriers around the most often abused local regulations and say to cities, hey, you have to permit uh, a reasonable share of housing, right? You have to uh, allow for developers to build some of this housing for which there's overwhelming demand. Uh, we'll see, you know, whether that's successful. I'm optimistic. I think things are moving in the right direction. Uh, but you're right that I think in a lot of the country, they're not really dealing with these issues or they're only starting to think about them now, right? Because I think something we've seen, uh, particularly over the course of the pandemic, is these housing crises that we once you know, associated with California or New York City are spreading all across the country, right? So I'm from Lexington uh, and, you know, Lexington, Kentucky, let's be clear. Excuse me. Yes. Lexington, Kentucky, the, the Lexington. Uh, and, you know, I mean, history, yeah, Lexington's grown very rapidly over the last 50 years, but they built a lot of housing and, you know, Lexington's kind of just been this iconic, uh, you know, affordable mid-sized city. Right. And it really hit me that this problem is going national. You know, when my parents were like, Hey, there's a, there's a line around the block of people with cash offers for a home on our street. Right. These are stories that you expect to hear in a place like Los Angeles, but you're increasingly hearing them uh, in places like Lexington or in places like Salt Lake City or in places uh, like Denver, Colorado. Um, and so this crisis is going national. And so, you know, local and state elected officials who think that this is a California problem, uh, you know, the clock is ticking, right? And the way I always say the way to stop a housing crisis uh, is to not start one, right? Um, so, you know, before you get these incredibly painful mismatches between housing supply and demand, this is the time to really start reforming and liberalizing a lot of these zoning regulations that stand in the way of new housing production. There are cities that have sort of recognized this problem and have attempted to deal with it. Uh, for those interested, you could listen to my conversation with Patrick Tuey, the Better Cities Project late last year about New Rochelle New York and their new housing blueprint. I believe that might be the actual title. Uh, and there are a lot of state lawmakers listen to the Cater Daily podcast. So if there is a nexus of political uh, reality and reforms that could go quite a bit, uh, go quite a distance toward making housing production easier uh, with sort of a low impact on communities that currently exist, what would you what would you recommend? states do? Because understanding that cities exist at the pleasure of states uh, and states can regulate essentially whatever they want. Yeah, I, I would do a few things. So first, I would basically take the most often abused regulations out of the local planning toolbox, right? So I talk about minimum parking requirements, which allows local governments to force developers to build large parking lots or parking garages that they might not otherwise have been. Um, of course, it's great to lower those those mandates and to ease the sting of those regulations. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but states could just say, hey, you know, we're not going to allow local governments to engage in this form of regulation. There's no health and safety justification for it. And it adds enormous costs. And there are a lot of zoning rules like that where the appropriate action is probably just to take those out of the local planning toolbox. In other cases, it might be to uh, you know, or I'll, I'll add to that too. And for example, it's not always going to be things like parking. It might be 
in, in, in states like red states like Arkansas and Texas, they've said, hey, you know, we're not going to allow for local governments to adopt arbitrary design mandates. You know, so, for example, in some cities in Arkansas, cities were trying to say, OK, you know, if you want to build a home in our community, it has to be all brick all around. It has to have these design specifications. It has to be at least this size. And all of that increased the cost of housing. Uh, and so policymakers in Arkansas just said, you know, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, there's no health and safety justification. You're taking away people's property rights and you're increasing the cost of housing. In other cases, too, I would say, you know, set up frameworks for certain types of uses that should be allowed. So in California, they've set up a statewide uh, set of standards for accessory dwelling units, which are additional units that can go maybe in a garage or a basement or an attic, and a homeowner can rent those out and earn an additional source of income and then create an inherently affordable uh, apartment in neighborhoods where they might not otherwise be available. So you can set statewide frameworks for stuff like that that say to local governments, hey, you have to allow, for example, an accessory dwelling unit or a home-based business if they meet these certain reasonable baseline standards. All right. Um, where have we seen, aside from California and, as you mentioned, Arkansas and Texas, uh, where where is the push strongest to begin the process of trying to essentially rein in local governments in the name of individual liberty? Yeah, well, you know, we tend to think of this as a as a blue state issue. And of course, states like California and Oregon are dealing with the issue uh, in a really serious way because the housing crisis is just so bad there. Uh, but as I try to stress, you know, I think a lot of red states are, are contending with these issues. Uh, so, you know, I'm hearing more and more in states like Utah and Texas where they're saying, hey, you know, um, these are great places to live. A lot of people want to live here. We have a lot of jobs. Incomes are going up. Uh, let's build enough housing to make sure that we can keep our cost of living uh, affordable. And so, you know, at the state level in a place like Texas, you know, there are conversations happening around things like minimum lot sizes, which say, you know, if you want to build a home, you have to have at least this much land. And they force, in many cases, homes to sit on much larger lots than they might otherwise have. Um, and of course, that comes with huge costs. Or, you know, in a state like Utah, they're saying, hey, if you want to be eligible for some of these state funds, we want to see, you know, what regulations are you are you getting rid of? that stand in the way of housing production? You know, are you putting up any money uh, for, for example, income restricted units for populations who might struggle to find units on the market, you know, even if we have housing abundance, right? So so low income seniors, for example. Um, that's, uh, I think, really exciting. Or another thing we've seen, which, you know, I'm always, I'm always riffing and I focus a lot on housing affordability, but economic opportunity is a huge part of the equation here. States all across the country are saying, you know, how do we remove barriers to home-based businesses? Uh, you know, that's an absolutely essential and low-cost form of entrepreneurship that a lot of people can engage in. And we've had a lot of really great conversations about this over the course of the pandemic now that everybody's working from home. Uh, but, you know, when people start to return to the office, if they start to return to the office, uh, you know, let's get those protections in place and make sure that, you know, hey, maybe that single mom who wants to start a business out of her home can can do that without having to go through a, a regulatory rigmarole or, you know, that person who wants to pursue their dream on the side, maybe building computers out of their garage. And I don't know, maybe start something like Apple someday. Um, make sure that code enforcers aren't coming out and, and shutting down those those businesses that really hold incredible opportunity. I would say the general framework for thinking about it is, you know, how do we get rid of barriers uh, to people doing things that make us all richer and happier and healthier? And on so many fronts, zoning is a barrier to those things. Uh, and once we sort of reckon with the fact that 
um, these rules don't actually serve any health and safety function, they don't make our communities better, then we can move on with the process of reforming and scrapping a lot of these rules. Nolan Gray is author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. We spoke earlier this month. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 